This morning, if you've got a Bible with you, would you go ahead and turn to the book of Matthew, book of Matthew chapter 16. I know you're looking at me like, wait a second, what about the 23rd Psalm? All right, we'll get back to that, okay? That's next week. I was disappointed too. <laughs> I've been enjoying it as well as, as Johnny's been going through it. In fact, I'll tell you this, I believe what God has given me this morning is a direct response uh, through Life Group, through my discussions and, and the encouragement I've gotten in Life Group, little plug for Life Group here in response to what God has shown me through the 23rd Psalm. Specifically, I don't know if you remember this illustration from a few weeks ago when Johnny was up here laying on his back on the stage and in Psalm 23, 2, talking about how the Lord has to make me lie down in green pastures. And something about that example and that phrase has just stuck with me. And I asked the question, I shared this with my life group as well, why do we have such a problem lying down in green pastures. Like, what is going on with that? And I've come to one conclusion. Conclusion is we don't recognize that we're in a green pasture, right? Like, he makes us lie down because you and I don't always recognize that we're in green pasture because maybe it doesn't look the way that we think that it should look. And so my question this morning, I hope we can answer before the end of the day, is why can't I recognize God's goodness to me, what's going on there, and how do I respond to that? I'm going to throw out a proposed answer to you beforehand. You're going to give me a strange look in just a second. I think I know the answer already to why that is. Why can't I detect God's goodness? Why can't I see that? It all comes down to one thing. You know what it is? Bad math. Bad math. You're like, wait a second. What? This is Sunday morning, all right? Kids are like, what? Math. Um, Bad math. I'll, I'll explain something. I think I've got an illustration to show this. I've got a couple of volunteers hiding over here in the wings. If they come join me out here. They got pulled into double duty this morning. All right, so I'm going to give each one of them a can of Coke. Let's say, by way of example this morning, that this can of Coke represents the life that God has given to each person that he's ever made, each person in the world. It's, it's a gift of grace, every person made in his image, and so in his eyes, equal in value. And so we're going to give each one of them one of these cans right here, okay, that will represent the God-given life that they have been given. Oh, yeah. So, oh, how clever of you. To, that was smart. <laughs> Pass it down the road. Way to be a gentleman, Zach. Appreciate that. All right, so this represents their life right here, and I'm going to give them something else. All right, let's say this amazing Speedway cup here, 22 ounces, represents the circumstances surrounding the individual lives, okay? Let's say this cup represents things like their opportunities that they have available to them, perhaps the monetary wealth that they have, perhaps the career choices that they have made that have opened them up to other things. This represents the potential that they have within their life, all right? So I'm going to give each one of them a different cup, and you'll notice... They're different sizes, right? Because you look around and see, although God has given each one in his grace, uh, uniquely made in his image value, uh, different people have different circumstances that they live out that value in, correct? Oh, I forgot one very important one. I've got a special one for you, Leanne. <laughs> That's a special edition with a handle and a straw. All right, so they're going to pour their, uh, their life, if you will, uh, into their... Circumstances of their life. Leanne has to juggle. I told her in the first service it was okay because she's drinking for two. So, 
they're going to add their life to the circumstances that surround their individual details of their life. All right? Now, you'll notice one thing. You'll have to take Leanne's word for it because you can't see inside of her cup. No matter how big the cup is, there's still the same amount of Coke inside of it, right? What does this tell us? All right, no matter the circumstances, how big or how small my opportunities may be or how well off I am compared to other people or how, many, how, many, how much my future, what my future looks like compared to other people, it doesn't matter because the most important part on the inside of those circumstances has not changed in any way. And it doesn't matter if I, if I work really hard and I, and I go to school and I get a good education and I try to better myself in some way, perhaps to move into a different life circumstance, guess what? The cup has gotten bigger, but what has not changed? My life. The value. Most important thing about me has not changed, right? Or you guys can set that down. Thank you for helping me up here. We're going to leave that there for the rest of the service by way of reminder. So here's the deal. What's going on here? I told you that I thought the answer came down to bad math. This is how we accumulate and approach determining our own value. We look at the next station up and we tell ourselves, if I were only able to move from this to something like this, I would truly enjoy life to its fullest, right? That, that's the idea. Like, I would find happiness if I could just move up the chain. You know what we're going to call that? Addition by addition, all right? One plus one equals two. That's what we think. Like, if I just have a little bit more, a little bit better opportunity, then things will be better. But in reality, the most important thing about me has not changed at all, has it? But yet we believe this lie so much about who we are and about our value, and about our worth. It's bad math. See, if this is the scenario that I, that I live by, my enjoyment of life, the fulfillment of life, is limited to the amount of life that I have left. And here's the thing, this is a precious currency. I'm not going to drink it, you thought I was. But that life is not forever, is it? All right, Sin happens in my life. That affects my life. The sin of other people happens in my life. That affects my life. Living in a broken world affects my life. My life could be taken from me in a moment, and it would no longer be there at all. And it doesn't matter what size the cup is. It's a precious, precious commodity. No matter how big the vessel, the capacity for enjoyment is the same, and it lessens each and every day. So today, Jesus wants to show us the math problem that we have. Life is not about addition by addition. That's not the pathway to true happiness, to true fulfillment. This morning, it's addition by subtraction is what he wants to show us. He says a very controversial verse. If you've got your Bible open there in, verse six, in chapter 16, look at verse 25 real quick. We'll come back to it again later. But this is what he says. We've heard this statement perhaps many times. Whoever would save his life would what? Lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. All right? What do you mean, Pastor Mark? To gain my life, I have to lose it. Right? What does that mean? What does that look like? All right, I want to give you a statement, a statement to hold on to for the course of our time together in God's Word this morning that I want you to keep in the back of your mind. 
And this is what it is. Savoring a life of personal subtraction, all right? Losing myself, if you will. Personal subtraction is the key to gaining the fullness of what Jesus has to give. I'll say it again. Savoring a life of personal subtraction is the key to gaining the fullness of what Jesus has to give. All right, so we're going to do and look here, at, starting in verse number 21. We're going to read um, about Peter, one of Jesus' disciples. I think he's very relatable uh, for many of us. We think a lot the same way that Peter thinks. Uh, but to give you a little bit of background information before we read the text about what just happened before that, it's always good to read Scripture in context. Just before this, the disciples have suddenly become aware exactly of who Jesus is. In fact, Jesus says to them in verse 16, You're the Christ. Uh, he says, Who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. And what does Jesus say? Blessed are you, Simon Barjona. Flesh and blood's not revealed this to you, but my father is in heaven. Then he goes on to say, this foundational truth of who I am is going to be the, the, the start of something new and amazing called the church. And guess what, Peter? You guys are going to be at the forefront of that and get to be a part of something exciting. So on a scale of like 1 to 10, if 10 being amazing, how do you think Peter is feeling right now after news like that? Pretty good, right? All right, so maybe these wheels are starting to turn a little bit in his head, and he's kind of like, huh, the Messiah in my lifetime, and I'm one of his best buddies. You know, I, he's starting to get some ideas. You know, he's like, I think we could take this thing on the road. He's like, oh, wait, I need to, like, pick up my phone and start calling some venues, right? Like, do we have enough seating? Is there going to be a place for, for all the people to get in? Like, we'll have Jesus come in there. Sure, he can stand right in the middle and get the spotlight, but I'll just stand just here to the side, just so a little bit of the spotlight gets on me too, right? He's making some plans. He's like, you know, ooh, you know what we actually need? We need some merchandise. We need some T-shirts. And so he's picking up the phone and calling, making plans. This is going to be great. He's super excited about what's happening. And that may be what has led him to what happens here in verse 21. This might be kind of his frame of mind. Here's what it says. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things and from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And listen to what Peter does. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this will never happen to you. Now, I don't want to beat up on Peter too much here. I honestly think that Peter had good intentions. All right, he was a little out of line. Like, it's not really proper protocol to take your master off to the side and have a little one-on-one -on -one chat. Uh, he sort of broke a few, a few rules there with the etiquette. But I can just imagine him, like, watching the crowd. Like, he's sitting there kind of off to the side. Jesus is teaching. He's like, oh, this is great. He's like, I love the way that he just healed that blind man. Like, did you see? Like, people were crying and raising their hands, and this is so good. And he's like, what else could we do? And like, all of a sudden, Jesus kind of like right in the middle of that, it's like, let me tell you actually what I'm here to do. And he starts talking about suffering and being, and being killed and dying on the cross and being raised again. And Peter's just kind of like, whoa, hold on a second. And he pulls Jesus, like, Jesus, Jesus, come here, come here, come here. Jesus, man, I, you know I love you. You know I love you. Man, I would sit at your feet all day long. So much fun to hang out with you. But dude, you got to stop this talking about dying. Like people are not digging that. Like if you watch their faces, you're kind of freaking people out, Jesus. Like I don't think this is a good play for you. Jesus, cut it out. 
he's like, I'm giving, helping Jesus out, right? And he's a little PR manager right there, giving a little free advice. How does Jesus respond? Some of the sternest words, I think, that Jesus said to Peter. But he, Jesus, verse 23, turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are hindrance to me. You are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Wow. Why did Jesus turn that up to 11? I mean, Peter was just kind of like trying to help out, right? Like, was it really that big of a deal that he had to throw down and call him Satan? Holy cow. I think Peter's just kind of like, I did not expect it to go that way. Like, what just happened there in that moment? I think... There's a couple clues here that give us an idea of what happened first. When it says he turned, this isn't clear in our English version of the Bible. That's not like the compassionate Jesus when someone on the side of the road is like, Lord, talk to me, and he turns and faces them in compassion. This is literally a turning away from Peter. So he gave Peter his back, and he said, get behind me, Satan. Now, why would he say something like that? Why not, why not just like, why, not, why wouldn't you say like, Peter, dude, I'm the master, okay? Like, shut your trap. I can do whatever I want. Say, get behind me, Satan. He said, you're a hindrance to me. And why are you a hindrance? You're not setting your mind on the things of God, but the things of man. I found out something this week in this text that I've never seen before, and I've read this text a lot. That phrase, setting your mind, if you look at that in the original languages, it's actually one word. And more, more closely to the understanding of what the meaning is, you know what the word is? It's savoring. Savoring. So to read it like that, he says, you are not savoring the things of God, but you're savoring the things of man. What does it mean to savor something? I've got an example. An amazing friend brought ribs, smoked ribs by the office this week. Whew! A little bit of an upper-scale lunch for us in the office, okay, than what we're accustomed to. Smoked ribs, and from the minute they came into the door, all of the staff came out of the office kind of on their own. We smelled the smell in the air, right? They followed our noses down the hall, and in the, in the conference room, there's a tray there with some tinfoil on the top, and you pulled that thing back, and it's like, oh, you know, well, what in the world? Like, you know, I'm, I'm used to eating like sandwiches, Okay. Smoked ribs and all the juices. And like he was telling us all the different things that the different flavors that were going to be in these ribs. And like your mouth is just watering. And so we put them on the plate and they were boneless. So good. Cutting that thing. Juices are just going everywhere. I know it's close to lunchtime. You guys will be okay. Picked up that first bite on the fork. Just put it in there and I just held it there for a minute. Okay, chew. You know, chew, 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 chew. Now, this is a funny statement. One of, my, one of uh, the staff was like, you know, Mark, you didn't say an entire word the whole time you were eating today, <laughs> which if you have ever been to lunch or a meal with me, you know that's quite an accomplishment, okay? Because I like to talk a lot when I eat. But I was, what was I doing in that moment? I was savoring, right? I was trying to, to get every single flavor note that I could possibly get out of those ribs and just enjoy it, you know, Savoring is enjoying something completely. And so when Jesus makes this accusation to Peter, he's saying, Peter, you are enjoying completely the things of the world and not completely the things of God. How is he doing that? See, Peter is looking 
at the opportunity available to him through the lens of what Jesus was doing. He saw Jesus going and becoming this big star and kicking out the Romans who were occupying the territory there and that perhaps he, Peter, would be along beside of him for the ride and that might mean something good for him. And so when he saw that vision of what he thought God's will should be for his life changing, he had a freak out moment. And so when Jesus approaches him and says, Peter, you're hindering me, it's because Peter was tempting Jesus to disobey the Father. Does that sound familiar? Another example of this, when Jesus was in the wilderness, right? By himself. And then three times, Satan came to him, tempting him with food, tempting him with power, tempting him with authority. If only he would turn from the living God and bow to him. And so when Jesus turns away from Peter in that moment, it feels all too familiar. Say, like, Peter, your limited view of what is going on here and what is important is blocking me from doing the thing that the Father wants me to do. And I will not disobey the Father. See, Peter was savoring the things of this world. This morning, I'm going to give you three things as we consider what it means to have addition by subtraction, gaining while losing. The first one in line with this is savoring subtraction. Savoring subtraction starts with enjoying his will. It starts with enjoying his will. The quick question, what do you think is the most important thing that Jesus ever did when he came to this earth? Nobody wants to answer. All right, so we're, in, we're inclined to say, he went to the cross, right? Not necessarily wrong, right? Like that, is, that is what he came here to do. But you know what the most important thing Jesus did when he came to this earth was? You got it. He obeyed his Father. You see that in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus is, is crying, sweat drops of blood, it says, as he's praying to God saying, God, if it were up to me, I would, I would ask that this cup be passed for me. I'm not, I don't want to walk through this. But he, then he says something very important. But nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. The greatest thing that Jesus ever did was be obedient to his father. And he wasn't going to let Peter get in the way of that. He's not going to let me get in the way of that. I want to make a statement. This is kind of a hard statement. It's convicting to me, but I think this is true. One of the greatest hindrances to the work of Christ in this world are his own followers who are savoring the details of their own individual lives instead of responding in obedience to the will of God. It's a hard truth. I think there's a lot of things that are all too familiar with Peter's response than perhaps the way that I would see it. And I think you and I often are guilty of making God in our image. What do I mean by that? It's like, I have a plan. I have a a way that I want to see things play out. God, you must love me, so you're going to bless me to accomplish the plan that I have set forth. And God's like, I do love you. I actually love you so much, I'm not going to give you the plan that you think you need to have. I've got a better plan. 
I want you to get on board with my plan. If you're going to stand against me, you're in the way. You're in the way of what I can do. If you're not enjoying my will and enjoying me for who I am. So how do I know? That's the question. How do I know if I'm savoring the will of God? Here's a hard question. Am I praying for his will to be done? Ever pray that prayer? Just tack that on? That's, a, that's a, like a, a big deal prayer, okay? It's in the Lord's Prayer. It's in the Bible. Lord, you know, not my will, but yours be done on earth as it is in heaven. You ever prayed that prayer like for real without fingers crossed and say, God, no, really, let your will be done. Hands off. Those are scary words, aren't they? But if I'm enjoying God's will, it says I believe that whatever he could lay out before me is infinitely better Worth infinitely more worth savoring than anything that I could possibly come up with, certainly more than any sort of shift change in my life of circumstances. How do I know I'm savoring as well? Do I make my plans with an open hand? When I pray and say, God, you know, it's not wrong to make plans, right? God gave us a brain, God gave us the ability to have choices and to make choices. It's not wrong to make choices, but I make them with an open hand, saying, God, I believe. In good faith, I've laid this before you. I think you want me to do this. I'm going to step forward, but God, if that's not for me, will you please shut that door? Will you please take it away from me? Because like Jesus, I don't want there to be any hindrances that I brought in between our relationship and me being obedient to your will. Do you say that? Here's a clincher. What's your response when things don't go according to your plan? That's the real tell-all. Because a lot of times we say things with our mouth that we don't believe in our heart. But when I start to sense that, that that plan that I laid out for God, God, you've got to follow my plan. When that starts to deviate because God has his own will, how do I respond? That might give us a tip. Am I savoring his will? See, Peter's problem was not disrespect. His problem was that his appetite wasn't tuned to God's will. He wasn't even aware how far off he is. So how do we avoid that blind spot. Well, this is the second thing this morning. Savoring subtraction is experienced through disciplined denial. It's experienced through disciplined denial. Look at verse number 24. So right after this, Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Did you hear that? If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and follow me. Can you imagine if your stomach and your taste buds were solely responsible for whatever you put into your mouth? All right? Your brain had no input onto it. The rest of you did not have any way to change it. Can you imagine if just your stomach and your taste buds could determine what you ate all the time? What would your diet look like? I'm just curious, all right? Anybody ice cream all the time? Probably, yeah. Way to be honest there. All right? We would probably be a little disappointed in ourselves if we realized that, hmm, taste buds, you know, I'll have some pie. Yeah, and actually I think I'll have another piece of pie. Vegetables? No, I'll pass on that. Nobody wants those, right? If my stomach and my taste, some of you are like, that's actually how all things work for me. (laughs) Um, If my stomach and taste buds made those decisions, my diet would not be good, would it? Yet I find it's it's not a coincidence at all that in Scripture, very often, that the center of a person is referred to as his stomach in Scripture. I find this funny. We think of it as like our mind and our heart. 
A lot of times the word is actually stomach. And when, we have, when we're savoring the things of the world, guess what we're being led around by? It's like being led around by your stomach. It's like, I, don't, I could eat. You know, actually, that looks better than the thing I already ate, so I'm going to go after that and eat a little bit more. He's saying, if you're going to follow me, what do you have to do? Let him deny himself. Deny himself. I can't eat ice cream all the time as much as that would be awesome. I have to stop. I have to say, no, I can't have any more and put it away. If I'm really undisciplined, I might have to throw it in the trash to get it out of the house. Some of us have to do that, don't we? What does denying yourself look like spiritually? It's a conscious refusal to savor the world. It's like I know everything is dangling there in front of me that looks good. But I also know that if I'm feeling impulsive that I need to go for it, that might not be something that's from God. That may be from the stomach, the center of me that's affected by sin. It's consciously saying no. It says, I know I have a taste for fill in the blank, but I'm not going to go for that. And maybe even a step further, I'm going to get rid of every aspect of that so that it's not there to hinder me from being obedient to God's will. I've got to take the food out of the house, so to speak, right? What's the other part of that, though? He says you deny, he denies himself and then takes up his cross and follows me. What does it mean to take up one's cross? A cross is not a play thing. You know, it, it, it's not a joke. We joke around a lot about, like, everyone's got their own cross to bear, right? And kind of use that in colloquial speech. But the reality is the cross is an instrument of death. It's meant to kill, and so when Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me, he's literally saying, deny what you want to do and walk the road of suffering with me as every single person that you walk by as you're being obedient to me is going to jeer at you and shout at you and point fingers at you and laugh at you and question, what in the world are you thinking? Don't you know how the world works? You got to work harder. You got to do better. You got to meet that better that better person to make you better, addition by addition by addition. A long stream of people to argue and to put you down. But Jesus says, that's where I'm going. And if you're going to come with me, pick up that cross. It's going to be hard. It's going to be different. It's going to be world-changing. It might even be extreme. But that's where I'm going. Until I do that, I can't truly follow him, can I? If there's a hindrance to me obeying the Father, because I'm resisting the urge. I'm not denying myself. I'm not willing to follow him through suffering or follow him through rejection or follow him through poverty or whatever that he may ask me to go, then I can't really go where he wants to go. It's like following Jesus with a U-Haul. It's like, God, I want to be obedient to your will, and I'm going to follow Jesus as long as you don't mess around with what I've got back here in the back. You can have all the rest of it, God. You can work in all of the other things. You can work in other people's lives, but I've got to take this with me. And as you're trying to pull this thing along as hard as you can, Jesus is going and you can't follow him because you're held up 
You're held up by your own belief. You're held up because you did deny yourself. He says if you're going to save your life, because that's a death sentence, by the way, right? If you're going to hold on to your things so tightly, eventually the currency is spent and you have nothing left. It's like if you're truly going to hold on to that and try to take care of all of that and hold on to your U-Haul of stuff, you're going to lose your life. You weren't made to carry that. You were made to be with me. He's like, but if you lose your life, there's that subtraction. If you lose your life willingly for my sake, you will find what it truly means to be alive. What does it mean to lose your life for Jesus? It doesn't mean Jesus takes away all my toys. Jesus doesn't want to have any fun. It's unclenching my hands. That's the simplest definition I can come up with. It's looking at my life and all of the things that have been given to me, because all of it's been given to me. I haven't done anything for myself. And it's letting my hands off. And then if Jesus says, come and follow me over here, it's, it, it's the willingness to be like, I obey God. I trust his word more than my wisdom. I'm walking away. I don't need it. I don't need that relationship if it's going to hinder me from being obedient to my Lord. I don't need that possession or that job if it's going to hinder me from having a deep relationship and treasuring and savoring Jesus Christ. I don't need those things. I can let them go. It doesn't mean that you need to go sell all your things and move and live up on a mountain after church today. I don't know. Maybe some of you need to do that. Following Jesus can be extreme, right? What I'm saying and what Jesus is trying to say is don't let any of these things, these circumstances that we get so worried about and bent out of shape, be a hindrance to, him, to us following him where he wants to go, where he wants to take us. Give it away. Leave it behind. Save your life. Do you recognize the areas this morning that you are vulnerable to treasure more than life in Jesus? Do you, would you like to see this morning what God can do in your life without the resistance that you've set up against his will? It's a powerful place to be in the hands of the Almighty God where I can let go of all of the other things that I've been holding on to and trust completely in his care and his leadership and to go wherever he calls me to go. That's when, that's when amazing things start happening. When his people are obedient. Are you willing to put something to death. To get the food out of the pantry this morning. In favor of the life that Christ offers. Here's the thing about denial. And loss. In terms of this verse. And subtraction. We've used that term this morning as well. It's not really a loss. It's an investment. And to be quite honest. It's an exchange. And this is our third and final thing this morning. Savoring subtraction, that personal subtraction, I am less, he is more. Losing my life to find life. Savoring subtraction is exchanging today for every day. An amazing illustration of this. You ever seen a kid with a bag of Skittles at like a lunch table? Okay, the little kid brings, uh, he gets his lunchbox out, he's there with his friends, he opens up the top of the lunch, and look, lo and behold, mom has packed a pack of Skittles in the top of his lunch. 
And he pulls that thing out very cautiously because there are roving eyes all around the table, right? And then what does he do? Like very carefully, he tries to open it, but let's be honest, little kids sometimes aren't the best at this. And he pulls a little too hard, and what happens? <laughs> pulls the bag, and what happens? Skittles go flying everywhere, and immediately what, what does he do? Right? Arm walls. You know, he lost a yellow one over there, but he doesn't care because he doesn't like yellow anyways. His friends are looking around like, oh, what you got there? And he's like, back off. Back off. Don't we do that same thing? When we start to sense that we're losing something, we put up the arm walls. I got to protect what's left. You got the one kid on the other side of the table is like, hey, I'll give you my pudding for some Skittles. He's like, no. Mm-mm. Pudding, really, man? Nobody eats that. Other guy's like, I'll give you a pack of carrot sticks. <laughs> carrot sticks for Skittles. And then the other guy's like, I'll, I'll give you five bucks for your Skittles. And he's kind of like doing math. Really bad at math, though. Even though he could probably buy like ten packs of Skittles for five bucks. He's like, No. Why? Because he's got the Skittles right in front of him right now, doesn't he? And these are my Skittles. And I'm going to eat these Skittles, and I'm going to enjoy them, and I'm going to savor mm, every last fruity bit. Because I got them right in front of my face. You know what that is? That's living for today. That's savoring today. That's not thinking long term. That's saying, I've got one life and I'm going to live it every moment up for myself and drinking this thing down until it's wasted. What if we begin to think differently? Look at verse number 26 and 27. What would it profit a man if he gains the whole world, but he forfeits his soul? What shall a man give in exchange or return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. What is he saying here? Basically, to sum up, he says, what is the value to you of the most important thing you've ever been given? If you could put a price tag on your life, on your soul, that part of you that God made to commune with him, what would the price be? It's the price tag, a nice home, two cars in the garage, a happy family, tons of money in the bank, respect, prominence, authority. If you had a price gun and you started labeling these things in your life, what would the price be for your soul? See, again, we think of loss in terms of other things we lose in this life that once it's gone, it's gone. But when I lose my life for Christ's sake, it is an investment. When willingly trusting Christ with my life is like this, okay? It says, here's my life, Lord, take every bit of it. And so he takes it, and then he gives this back to me. Now, what is in this cup right now? What's in it? You're all wrong. This cup is more full now than it was just a moment ago but it's filled with something entirely different than before, isn't it? There's air in here. I know, cheesy illustration. 
this is filled to the top with air. It can't be more full than it is. And, and you know what this is the best part? I can't lose any of the air. <laughs> I can't suck it out of there. I can't, no one can take it out of there. It's, it's, it can never be more full. If I left this here for a thousand years and some, by some miracle this building was still standing, that cup would still be infinitely full of air. See, when I lose my life in following Jesus, when I say no and deny myself and following my impulses, when I walk away from the things that are hindering me from being obedient to the Father, I'm exchanging the temporary things for something completely different, new life in Jesus Christ that is not based upon a circumstance, that extends far beyond this material time that we have on this earth and gives me hope and a future and something outside of myself and my ability to save myself. You know what we call that? That's called adding by subtracting. It's cutting me out of the picture so that I can gain what is offered to me in Jesus Christ. When he came to this earth and put on flesh so he could live among us, know us, experience life as we experience it, so that he could go and, and willingly obey the Father and go to the cross and die and shed his perfect blood so that my life might be saved if I put faith and trust in what he did. That is what we call the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. It's a free gift. I didn't earn it but it's not mine until I take it, until I turn over my life and say, make me new. Gray already read Revelation there at the end. Jesus said, I am making all things new. And first and foremost, you are that thing that he is making new, that he offers to make new. Are you savoring that life of personal subtraction? got a quote here from Dietrich Bonhoeffer from his book The Cost of Discipleship. It's a great book. If you haven't read it, I recommend it. It's a longer quote. I'm going to read it to you though. When he was challenged by Jesus to accept a life of voluntary poverty, the rich young man knew that he was faced with a simple alternative of obedience or disobedience. When Levi was called from the receipt of custom and Peter from his nets, there was no doubt that Jesus meant business. Both of them were to leave everything and follow. Again, when Peter was called to walk on the rolling sea, he had to get up and risk his life. Only one thing was required in each of these cases, to rely on Christ's word and to cling to it as offering greater security than all of the securities in the world. What are you clinging to desperately this morning? What is holding you back? What are you holding on to so tightly that you can't let your hands off and follow where Jesus wants to lead you this morning? I trust that he's revealing that to you in this space this morning. He worked powerfully in that in my heart this week as I looked in his word. And so in just a moment, we're going to do something different. I'm going to pray. And after I pray, I believe firmly that there's a connection between faith and feet. Book of James would agree with me on that. But there's a connection between taking action and what I say I believe. So in this space this morning, I want to give you an opportunity along with you to take action. It's kind of old school. 
I'm gonna invite you during this song to come forward and take a knee here at the front and spend some time talking to the Lord about these things, about the things that you've held on to too tightly. Maybe you need to say, God, forgive me. I can't believe that's occupied so much of my time and life and energy. Or maybe for the first time you would say, you know what, I want that kind of life that you talk about, Pastor Mark. I want to know forgiveness. I want to know hope in a future that's not wrapped up in how well I handle my life and the things that I can do. I want to know what that's like. Man, I'd love to pray with you about that. But come together, gather around. Let's pray here together at the altar. Would you?